Tonight on the Virtual Bible Study, we're going to continue a discussion we started last week looking at Bible questions for the Church of Christ. Yes, we came across, in fact, a listener connected us with an Internet article wherein a fellow tries to represent what we, as members of the Church of Christ, believe and practice. He is not a member of the Church of Christ, but he he was trying to explain our positions on various subjects, and he, he's completely off. I mean, he very badly misrepresented us. So we thought we'd go through his description of the Church of Christ and 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 sort of show what we really do believe and where he's in error. It's an important discussion that we'll continue. We're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and we welcome you to the virtual bible study for thursday february 4th 2000 nope sorry february 11th 2021 thank you for joining us on the program tonight my name is jacob gwynn my father greg gwynn is here Dad. jacob great to be with you tonight. kyle's here as usual kyle welcome it's good to be here. glad that you're here and uh, glad that you're listening tonight. Uh, we want to hear from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com and in the chat room tonight. Uh, it's going to be a busy discussion tonight. Uh, we're going to have to move faster than we did last week to get finished, I think, yeah. because some of these are pretty meaty uh, topics to discuss. Uh, and so we'll look forward to hearing from you. Your comments will make the program better tonight. Uh, they're signing in. Uh, we're touching uh, the well, the uh, down around the Gulf Coast or Atlantic Coast there in James and Florida. We're out on the West Coast with Brian in California. Some in the Midwest there, Dwight and uh, Michelle and Lou. Uh, so Up they're in all... frigid Minnesota. That's right. He won't be sending any comments tonight because he can't fill his fingers. But, well, the electrons that go through the wires have actually frozen. Uh, yeah. okay. They're not moving. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into it. All right. So la- uh, we, we just don't have time to review what we talked about last week. But what we have done is numbered the uh, paragraphs in this fellow's sort of summary description, doctrinal summary, he called it, of the Church of Christ. And so we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. If you are new to the discussion, go back in the archives and listen to last week, and then you can catch up with us where we are tonight. Uh, and so we've just numbered these paragraphs, and then, and the next paragraph, again, I think misrepresents us or doesn't do a very good job of describing us. This fellow says, and we don't know the guy's name. He didn't sign his, his article. He says, they believe in patternism. That is, they attempt to copy what they think the earliest Christians did in their life and worship. They find patternism to be a necessary inference that must be rigidly followed in order to be pleasing to God and thus saved. All right. So what? sign in the chat room there. Let us know what you think about it. What is this idea about patternism? Go get some, there's another email. It, oh, there's, okay, there's, what about patternism? Uh, is that something that, uh, well, that's sort of taboo, that God would expect you to follow patterns? You know, when, when this fellow uh, says these things, you get the impression that he's saying this is a bad thing. Yep. You know, the way that's written, you're left with the impression it's a bad thing to seek out a pattern uh, for, for practice in the New Testament church. Uh, 
I actually think we're told to do that. We're commanded to follow the pattern set forth in the Scripture. Notice what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. He said, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul said, do what you saw me do. Mm-hmm. So here's the inspired apostle Paul. He's saying, follow the pattern. Follow the example you saw, saw in me. Now, if you just, well, first of all, that's a command. As a command to follow the example, the apostolic examples are found in the New Testament. But if you stop to think about that, here here were Christians worshiping and working and serving while the inspired apostles were still alive. And so the inspired apostles, they were getting direct, hands-on guidance from the inspired apostles. So it'd be fair to say that what they did with apostolic approval. Now, some, there, there's some things they did they didn't have apostolic approval. But wherein they did things that they had apostolic approval, that would be right, wouldn't it? It'd have to be It'd have right. to be right. It couldn't be wrong. Be right. And therefore, if we did the same things, if we followed the pattern they set, we'd have to be right too, wouldn't we? You would think, but it's some, this is, he's deriding this idea. Let me take you back to the Old Testament. What about Exodus chapter 26? What about all those instructions about the tabernacle? They're very ornate. Do you get drowsy when you read that? I oh, get yeah. drowsy. Yeah. When we're doing our daily Bible readings, that, that you have to work to stay with that. I mean, it's detail on detail on detail. Uh, now, that's interesting because God had chose to put that in there. Think about the number of pieces of paper that, that those instructions have taken throughout time. Think about the number. Now, if it was just instructions, I can understand that Moses would need to understand how to build a tabernacle. That's a, It was a very intricate thing very detailed. He would need some instructions. I can understand God giving him instructions. But when I buy something that needs to be put together, it comes with instructions, but those are typically on like flimsy pieces of paper. And as soon as the thing is built, the instructions go in the trash can. Why would God have chosen to preserve that throughout time? Nobody's building tabernacles today. I don't need to know how many rods and how many cups were. I don't need to know that. Why would God have put that in the Bible? He tells me why yeah. in Hebrews chapter 8. Right. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, God told Moses, he says, See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. The Old Testament is there for our learning, that God, when he gives instructions, expects you to follow those He's instructions. He's a God of details, and he expects us to follow the details. He told Moses, as you said there, see that you follow the pattern. Now, again, the pattern that Moses was to follow is not the pattern that we are to follow. But the principle the is The principle there. is there. Exactly yeah, right. Right. Okay. So let's see what our emailers say, Jacob. All right. Uh, so, well, Kent says he pleads guilty to patternism. It, all patternism really is about following a specific model. The New Testament gives various models for us to follow. Because I sincerely seek to follow the New Testament doctrine in all aspects, that means I follow the pattern set forth in the New Testament. The author of the material under review denies that he is following a pattern, therefore such implies that he is not following the New Testament of Christ. Okay. Uh, Kent is, uh, says that he, he's, he's willing to say that he's guilty of that. He goes on, uh, he, and his, that was last week's response we didn't get to. He added more this week. He says, of course we believe in following the New Testament as a pattern. The basic term tupos uh, means standard, pattern, and form, such is basic New Testament doctrine. Such carries with it a moral idea, Philippians 3, 17, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Titus 2, verse 7. Does the author of the article affirm that morality is unimportant? Such also carries with it a technical idea, Acts seven forty four, Hebrews 8, verse 5. Does the author of this article believe that it is unnecessary to conform to New Testament teaching? 
Such carries with it a doctrinal standard, Romans 6, 17, and 18, 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. Does the author of the article believe that we should throw out the teaching of the New Testament? This guy really has some serious problems, he says. And from, uh, from last week, Mohan said, if we don't follow the specifics on worship laid out in the Bible, we can do about anything. Therefore, we need the specifics from the Bible. Well, there you go, Mohan. If we don't have to follow the specifics in every matter, we don't have to follow them in any matter. And that means anything goes, as Mohan has said. And who can draw the line? You can't draw the line. And yeah. and we'll never be unified if there is no standard or no pattern for us to follow in how God expects things to be like. Why would God go to the trouble to show us these things if we're just supposed to ignore them? And why would he go to the trouble of telling us how the New Testament church was organized yeah. and how it worked? If it doesn't matter and we can just throw them out, why not throw our Bibles away? Dwight in Iowa references, and I won't take time to read, but he references 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Philippians 3, 17 through 20, Colossians 3, 17, John 14, 15, John 15, 14. And then he makes this observation. We are to follow after the teachings of Christ. And those verses that he referenced all indicate that. We're to follow after the teaching of Christ, and we will if we love him. If we follow after the teachings of man, we then we do not love the Lord. If one thinks that following the words of the Lord, for instance, in Colossians 3.16, uh, about singing in our hearts to the Lord, if, if that's patternism, then, that's, then you're right. Consider Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire to the Lord, and they were consumed. They did not follow the pattern God set before them. This example is from the Old Testament, which, which we turn to because... Before Christ died, uh, those of that time were kept under the custody of the law, Galatians 3.23. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster, Galatians 3.25. Now, he's going to – that sort of links this question with the next one. But he's very much saying the pattern set forth, we're expected to follow it. All right. Brad is in Athens, Alabama tonight. Brad's a longtime listener, mostly a podcast listener, but he's actually in the chat room tonight. Glad to have you, Brad, and, and glad to have your email response here to, as well. He said, God told Moses to construct the tabernacle and its furnishings according to the pattern, Exodus 25, verse 9, Exodus 25, verse 40, Exodus 26, verse 30. Paul told the Philippians to join in following my example and show and those who walk as you have us for a pattern, Philippians 3.17. He went on to tell Timothy, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. First Timothy 4, verse 12. And Titus, in all things, show yourself a pattern of good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Paul claimed to teach the same thing in all the churches. First Corinthians 7, verse 17. I prefer the term approved example, but whether you call it patternism or approved example, it both it looks as if both God and Paul endorse that approach as we ought to pattern our lives. Yeah, Thank James you. in Florida is in the chat room, and, and he mentioned some of those same verses and indicating that, that the term pattern is a New Testament term. Uh, four times the New Testament uses the term pattern pertaining to the gospel age. Philippians 3.17, 1 Timothy 1.16, 2 Timothy 1.13, 1, Titus 2.7. I think, thank you, James. And I think that's a good observation. Again, you almost get the idea that the author of the article that we're reviewing suggests that the word pattern is a dirty word almost, that it's a bad thing if you're following a pattern. We think not, obviously. Show us why it's wrong. I mean, do you throw it out there and say, oh, look at them? Why is it wrong? He eats peanut butter sandwiches. Oh, Kyle. Yeah. I don't think it's. Most of our practices, because we pattern ourselves after the gospel, after, but, and because we know it is right, 
So why would patterning ourselves that cannot be wrong? That's as yeah. you said, it can't be wrong. Yeah. So. You know, Kyle, when I was a kid, I remember, and I don't hear this terminology a lot anymore, but I used to remember when I was a young person hearing preachers talk about the infallibly safe way. That's pretty good. That's a, a, a good approach to think. Do what you know is right and can't possibly be wrong. And following the New Testament pattern can't possibly be wrong. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Kyle, uh, you can tell me what it looks like on the camera. Does it look like we're wearing a uniform tonight? Do, we, do the shirts look the same? A little bit. No. no not too much. No, that's not, uh, inadvertent. Uh, I guess There's we're getting out. My, my, my video window is look, stalled. My, pretty close, though, on the plan. We need to coordinate that a little better. There we go. Right. I think I, I, I wasn't... I wasn't Seeing the live video, but I think we're okay. All right. All right. Real quickly, question or paragraph 10 says this approach about patternism. We're back to our article now. And the Internet author says this approach, this patternism idea, they believe leads to certain important conclusions, such as the prohibition of instrumental music in worship. Now, that may be sort of an accurate representation of why we are where we are about Music in worship to maybe God. That, maybe that's why he doesn't like patternism, because it means you have to do certain things. You know, maybe he's starting to explain why it is a bad thing. In so his eyes. We, we, try, we are trying to worship just like the first century Christians worshiped. What do we know about their worship? Well, we know that in the New Testament there's absolutely no reference to the use of instruments of music in worship to God. We know that there are in the Old Testament. We're not debating that. But in the New Testament, which is the law for us, the pattern that we're trying to follow, trying to be like first century Christians, trying to be like the church you read about in your New Testament, we know, and you know what's interesting, church historians agree unanimously that the earliest Christians did not employ instrumental music in their worship to God. Okay. So here, here's a place where the fellow may have accurately represented us. We do believe in patternism, which he thinks is a faulty idea. But that belief in patternism leads us to the conclusion that we should not have instruments of music in our worship assemblies. You know, that uh, we try to stress this. We've talked about instrumental music so many times on the virtual Bible study. This is not a matter of personal preference with us. It's not that, hey, we like a cappella singing better than we like musical accompaniment, so that's what we do. That's not the case. I think if you were to take a vote, if we were just going to, if we're just going to follow the majority preference in the matter, I believe we'd have instrumental music. I, I personally like the You'd sound. You'd vote for of it. it. I'd vote for it. You'd vote for it. If it was yeah. up to me, it's not up to me. That's right. Because the pattern set forth in the New Testament does not allow it. And so the guy's right about that. You know, it's interesting. His argument in defending uh, instrumental music is they believe in patternism, and he's sort of alluded to the fact that that is some type of sinful approach. And, therefore, they don't have instrumental music because they have this sinful approach. There's no Bible here. There's no scriptural defense of instrumental music. It's just, uh, oh, patternism. Get what he's saying. He says they have developed a flawed way of thinking. Their flawed way of thinking says says you should follow the New Testament pattern. And since they have this flawed way of thinking... Therefore, they've reached a faulty conclusion that they shouldn't use instruments of music in their worship. It's, it's, it, well, it's straw man argumentation and complete, it's a house of cards. It's completely without proof. Yeah. All right. So, back to your statement earlier that you know that they were approved in the New Testament when they did something. Why wouldn't you do that again today? Same is true with music, instrumental music. We know that they didn't have instrumental music. Yeah. 
and they were approved by God in the first century. Why would you want to change that today? Yeah. I've used the illustration before. You know, if I, if I hire you to paint my house and I say, I want you to paint it white. And then I leave for a trip and expect you to be doing the work while I'm gone. And you come to paint my house. And when you get ready to start, say, you know, I could paint it white, but I kind of think painting this house green would be better. I want to paint it green. Well, you're, you're, you're going way out on a limb there. When I come back, there, one of two things is going to happen. One thing, one possibility, although, although fairly remote, would be for me to say, hey, I like it green. Good call. Here's your money. But a far, a far greater potential exists for me to say, hey, you didn't do what I told you to do. I'm not paying you. Well, and that's true. If you sort of left it open to interpretation, but if you explicitly told me, do it like I told you, and I painted it green, then I'd be confident that you wouldn't be pleased. Right. And and same is true for instrumental music. You are going out on a limb, but even that, God said, I want you to do it. Because we know what he said. That's right. Okay. Brian in California says, precedent has such a large part in our legal jurisprudence. Why do postmodernists seemingly want to discard all forms of traditions and patterns? Yeah, I I think you're right, uh, Brian. But, of course, even in in our judicial system of these days, they're not adhering to precedent very, very accurately. And it frustrates us in regards to our judicial system and our government. And certainly it's frustrating in in religious observance, too. Here's what Kent says. Uh, He says the use of instrumental music of of mechanical instruments of music in conjunction with New Testament worship is not authorized by God. Colossians 3, 16 and 17, 2 John 9 through 11. Uh, That is uh, what makes the usage of mechanical instruments of music in accompaniment with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs sinful. That which is not authorized is not required to be explicitly prohibited. Such is sinful because of the absence of New Testament authority. So just because God said didn't say don't use instruments of music and worship, does it mean that you can? And, and that's the point that, uh, that Kent is making. I think that's really important. You know, when I order something online, for instance, you go to the massive Amazon website and you order a specific item from that Internet website, you don't have to say, now don't send me this and don't send me that. You don't have to go through the whole list of millions of things they have for sale and say don't send me this. Don't send me. You, when you specify what you want, Everything else is excluded. That's just a principle of logic. That's just a means of communication that we use every day. And, that's, and, and so we have to accept that same principle of communication from God. He's in the New Testament. Vocal music, singing is specified. Nothing else is mentioned. We've got to leave everything else alone. All right. Brad in Athens, Alabama, says yes and no. In other words, no, we find no pattern of instrumental music in New Testament churches, but neither do we find a command or a compelling reason to infer that God approves of such. And yes, I'm going back to the pattern of 2 Samuel 7, verse 7. When did God ask Israel to build him a house of cedar? When did Jesus ask churches to worship him with harps and timbrels? I like get, that one. You get that point. Brad is making a good point from 2 Samuel 7, 7. You know, when the, when... King David decided he was going to build a house, a permanent temple, rather than the portable tabernacle that they'd used for centuries. God said, when did I tell you to do that? And he, he hadn't said, don't do it, but he hadn't said, do it. And, and, and God basically accused them of a presumption there. Was David sincere? 
Sure he was. Absolutely. He was going to make huge sacrifices do that. And everybody in their right mind was, well, that sounds like a good idea to me. God's in this old tent. Why not give him a fancy tabernacle, gold and, and stone? And God said, I didn't ask for that. Yeah, when did I tell you to do that? Yeah. Uh, and then he said, Jacob's constant refrain is the best answer. You either condone, confine yourself to the practices of the New Testament churches or you forfeit the moral authority to condemn anyone for going too far, whether it be the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church or the bull riding and indoor fireworks of the molt, milk mol- toast. Oh, milk toast. Yeah. Feel good. Uh, social entertainment churches. That's right. Exactly right. All right. Thank you. We've got to grab a break. We've got to hurry on. We're, we're ready for, if you're following along with our post, we're ready for paragraph 11. We're going to have to hurry when we get back. All right. Um, James in Florida, before we move on, rather than say that silence forbids, what we should say is that silence does not empower. Because of sin, we are powerless to approach God unless God empowers us to approach him. John tells us in John 1 verse 12, that Jesus gave people the power to become the sons of God. We cannot serve God in any way except that the grace of God grants us the power to serve him any more than than someone can go into Buckingham Palace without first being granted permission. Silence would not allow entrance. God has specified that our accompaniment should be making melody in your heart. Ephesians 2 verse 10 does not say works which man has prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. So uh, God's uh, um, instructions there empower us. In other, in other words, he's told us what to do in order to be pleasing to him, and we can't just I, do I it think on our he's, own. I think James is right, and, and we say it, uh, he said it a little differently, but what we typically say is silence does not authorize. Mm-hmm. Just because nothing is said on that subject does not authorize you to act. Silence. There's no authority in uh, in silence. And there's a real good. We make a, I think, a, a really important point along that line uh, in Hebrews. Let me see. In Hebrews chapter seven, the Hebrew writer is talking about a change in the law. Jesus could not have been a priest under the Old Testament system because he was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. Uh, he says. Uh, uh, Hebrews 7 verse 13, he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Moses didn't say he could. Moses didn't say he couldn't be a, be a priest from the tribe of Judah. He didn't. He was silent on that subject. And the Hebrew writer says that means you can't act on the basis of silence. All right, we're going to get our first break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion of oh, the Old Testament. How does it uh, apply to us today? Yeah, exactly right. All right, we're going to talk about that. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Here's a quick thought. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, 16. Search for things you can share today. In doing so, you're living in a way that's pleasing to God. Think about it. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. There's a tendency for people to credit themselves with their successes, but to blame God for their failures. Prayer to God with thanksgiving is necessary, not because God needs it, but because we need it. 
Man, wish I'd said that. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program. Are you thinking about saying seize the day after you do your quotes now? No, I, I, I am not going to challenge Harv there. He's, okay. got, he's, he's got it down. All right. Uh, we're uh, talking about some questions that someone has posed uh, to the Church of Christ. He thinks that, to he, that we are in error in a lot of areas. We appreciate the challenge. We want to make sure that we go back to the scriptures and we verify that we're in And again, I hope our listeners agree or don't agree with us on any one of these given specifics. Understand, we are not adverse to being challenged about what we believe. We invite it. We we think that's how we make sure what the Bible says and what we ought to be doing is no it, it we want we want uh, uh, to review our faith. We want to investigate our doctrinal positions. We want to be right. All right. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Uh, Kyle, uh, we do. We appreciate uh, the, the opportunity to examine ourselves and make sure that we are walking as we should. Yeah, we're supposed to. I think uh, it's, we want to make sure that we're always obeying the gospel. So if, somebody, if we're not, then... The need to be corrected is always there. We need to be humble enough to say and we need to correct ourselves. But, uh, all yeah. right. Uh, let's get on to the discussion here. Okay. Number 11. I'm looking at paragraph number 11, doctrinal summary of the Church of Christ. They generally reject the Old Testament except in such instances that they find passages in the Old Testament that lend support to their doctrine. We don't reject. I, I, I I object to the word reject. Mm. Uh, we don't reject the Old Testament. We believe it is the inspired word of God. It is a valuable uh, reservoir of information. Uh, and and we use it. We study it. We study it frequently. We study it often. And, and we believe that even the New Testament tells us that we should. Uh, it, it says... In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, these things, talking about the Old Testament, these things were written, for example, in the, uh, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, neither be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, get this. You'd have to know the Old Testament story to have any idea at all what Paul was talking about in any of those. He, he, he just went through a catalog of examples. But you wouldn't know what any of that means if you didn't have the Old Testament to study. Then he concludes, Now all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Paul says that the Old Testament is for our learning. And so... You did this just earlier tonight, Jacob. You went back and used the the pattern of the Old Testament tabernacle, the pattern that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai for how the tabernacle could be constructed. We're not building tabernacles. We're not supposed to build a tabernacle. But there's a moral lesson to be gained by studying that episode. And as you referenced in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, I think it was verse 5, the, the Hebrew writer referenced that to draw a conclusion concerning what we should be doing today. The Old Testament is not our law, but it is valuable for our learning. That's how we use it. It is not our law. We learn from it. It's for our benefit. But Galatians 5 verse 4 says, Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. We can't uh, be justified by that Old Testament law. We should not use that Old Testament law for our guide today. 
but it does teach us principles about God and his expectations for people. Brad and James are uh, bantering back and forth in the chat room tonight. Some good well, discussion We may have there. to let that run. We're, gonna, uh, we're running out of time. We may have to let them chat among themselves there, Jacob. Okay. Well, I'm going to hit it quick. James, uh, another way of putting it, uh, Brad says, in terms of, of uh, specificity, if God says to do this thing this way, then we have no liberty to do it any other way. On the other hand, if God says, do this thing, then we have the liberty to perform that task in any way we see it. And James says, Romans 16, 26 states that the preaching of the God, first century used the scriptures of the prophets to make what the mystery to, uh, which God had not previously made known now manifest to all nations. The sermons of the book of Acts, with the exception of the sermon in Athens, uses the Old Testament as the tool by which they proclaim the gospel. Yeah, look at Peter, Acts chapter 2. Uh, look at at, uh, at um, um, James and Stephen. Acts Stephen in Acts seven. James in Acts fifteen. Yeah, they all reference the Old Testament to draw conclusions about how things should be for us. There you go. So no, we don't reject the Old Testament. Kent, we, it's not Kent, our authority. Kent, Georgia says we do not reject the Old Testament. We accept what the Scriptures teach about the Old Testament. That such was fulfilled by Christ being fulfilled by Christ being abrogated and taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. Colossians two twelve through fifteen. There are eternal principles taught within the scriptures in all the covenants of God. We accept those truths as binding today, not because they're part of the Old Testament, but rather because their eternal nature being included in the complete revelation of God set forth in the New Testament of Christ. You know, that's kind of a good point. For instance, the Ten Commandments. We we follow the principles of the Ten Commandments not because they are in the Old Testament, but because the principles of nine out of ten of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament with the exception of Commandment number four about the Sabbath day. All right. Thank you, Kent, for that. Here's what uh, Dwight says. Uh, yes, the Old Testament law is important, but we turn to it to see the, how that God dealt with people during that era. We now have the new law, the New Testament, and if one looks into the scriptures, they would clearly see that we serve the same God as the Old Testament people serve. Uh, but uh, we have a much better plan to follow than those of the Old Testament. And Mohan's up in Illinois. He says, we don't follow the Old Testament law, but we read true stories in the Old Testament. Uh, we're written for our example for example, if we disobey like many of the Israelites did, we will face consequences as a result of God's justice. The Psalms and Proverbs offer us wisdom, but we don't follow any of the law. The Moses written in those books. Uh, so uh, thank you, Mohan. Mohan says, yeah, we use it for an example. We use it for uh, learning, but it's not our, our, law, our law today. And Brad says, this man misunderstands what we're saying. We do not reject the Old Testament. In fact, I cited the Old Testament in previous statements. It's for our learning, Romans 15, verse 4. What we teach is what Paul and the apostles taught. The law of Moses is no longer in force. But that does not mean that we reject it. There's a lot of prophecy in the law of Moses that came to pass, uh, and he references some of them. There's prophecy written by those who lived under the law, which came to pass. There are instructions and covenants that God established before the law of Moses, and they're still in force. For instance, regarding marriage, the rainbow covenant, the covenant with Abraham that his seed would bless all the earth and so forth. So there there are some eternal statements even predating, uh, Brad says, uh, the, the, uh, the law of Moses. He says, I think that the principles we learn from the law of Moses, even though it's no longer in force. Uh, he thinks there are principles that we learn. There are principles we learn from the law of Moses, even though it's no longer in force. Paul cited Deuteronomy 25.4 not to muzzle the ox that treads the grain in order to conclude that elders who labor in the word may enjoy pecuniary dispens- uh, compensation, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.17-18. 
in this pandemic time, we looked at some cues from Leviticus, Leviticus 13 on how quarantines ought to work. Bottom line, this fellow really just doesn't understand what we teach, what the Bible teaches on this matter. All right. Good. Thank you, Brad. Uh, excellent comments tonight. All right. Number moving, 12. Moving quickly. Moving quickly. Oh, it's time for a break. Let's grab our break, and we'll get paragraph 12 when we come back. All right. We're going to go fast. we got to go fast. We've only done three paragraphs. We've got like 10 to do here. Oh, boy. Stay tuned. We're going fast after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Those of us who believe in the Bible account of creation are often ridiculed for having made a, quote, blind leap of faith, unquote. It is unreasonable, we are told, to believe in something that cannot be proved. The kind of proof that our critics are asking for is empirical proof, the kind obtained in a scientific laboratory where processes are repeated and observed and where pertinent data can be recorded. Obviously, this sort of thing is unavailable when discussing creation. But we do have proof. Our evidence is the same sort that's used to prove any historical event that cannot be repeated. How would you, for instance, prove that George Washington was the first president of the United States, that the Titanic sank, or the terror attacks that took place on the World Trade Center in 2001? You can't repeat the events, but you can come to a clear and definite conclusion that they actually happened. We believe the same thing is true about God's obvious creative work. But if we're really going to talk about blind leaps of faith, Consider the folks who believe in the Big Bang and the theory of evolution. They have no proof at all. In fact, those ideas violate the basic laws of science and don't even demonstrate common logic. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. And check out the YouTube feed at Kyle. That's your cue, Kyle. Stream, it's, yeah, College View Livestream. You have to search for it. College View Livestream. This is the virtual Bible study. They're two different channels. But, yeah. So it's good. All right. Fill in the Internet with lots of good teaching out there. So check it out. All um, right. We're talking about Bible questions for I the Church a, of Christ. I got a, a message in the YouTube chat room from Corbin in North Alabama. Corbin is listening. Oh, well, glad to hear from Corbin tonight. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Corbin. Um, all right. Um, let's go on. <laughs> Brad says, can you tighten up your answers? We're not going to make it to number 19. <laughs> Oh. Uh, I think, and he says that's he, he call he says he's the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, Brad, uh, who sent us a page and a half of answers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we probably are not going to get done. But you know, I just was telling Jacob in the break, if we go too fast, we don't make our point and and clearly explain our position. So we may just slow down here a little bit and and carry this over another week if we have to. Okay. All right. So the next paragraph, he quotes. Uh, a historian, Richard Hughes, who, whom I do not know, I don't know that I've ever heard of him before, uh, he quotes this historian, Richard Hughes, to describe our position on grace. He says, according to historian Richard Hughes, grace is understood by the Church of Christ as something that God is obligated to give the believer who is obedient. They may also believe that grace is what God bestows to one who has done everything he can to be obedient. 
Thus, grace is the small remaining step that remains toward salvation after one is correctly obedient. God fills the gap with his grace. That is all wrong. Yep. There's there's not any element of of, of accuracy in any of that description. No, notice, grace is understood by us, he says. Grace is understood as something that God is obligated to give the believer who is obedient. Right. That's absolutely contrary to the very definition of grace. No, grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And so if God was obligated to give us something, it wouldn't be grace because obligation means we've earned it. We merit it. We deserve it. And and the, the very definition of grace says that's not so. So. This Richard Hughes, who is who is quoted by the author of this article, he gives Richard Hughes's name. He doesn't give his own name, but but this Richard Hughes, this historian Richard Hughes, whoever he is and whatever his credentials may be, he is just wrong about what we believe concerning grace. Maybe he's not a historian after all. Maybe he's a fictional author. Maybe. Okay. So, grace is what God bestows to one who has done everything he can to be obedient. Thus, grace is the small remaining step that remains toward salvation after one is correctly obedient. God fills the gap with his grace. That's not, that's just not accurate. There's no gap. There's no gap to be filled. We, we, can't, we can't get there from here. We can't get halfway there from here. We can't get three quarters of the way from here. We can't get there. Because we are we are sinners uh, who deserve to to be punished in hell, and God's grace makes salvation possible to us. It's entirely based our whole ability to have a hope of heaven and eternity is based upon the fact that God favored us when we don't deserve it. It's not that God fills some gap. It's all by grace that we will be saved. Now, we'll, we'll comment some on the fact that certainly God has, has, has given conditions for us that we need to meet, but we believe that we're saved wholly by grace through faith. All right. Here's what our listener said. Uh, Kent says the author of this article obviously does not understand that there are two sides of salvation, God's side of salvation in providing such for us, which is inclusive of his grace or unmerited favor. The second side to salvation is our response to his offer of grace, by our obedience to the conditions that God has placed on salvation from sin, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. When one affirms that obedience is not essential to salvation from sin, then one throws out the doctrine of salvation by faith and implies that no one will be lost, affirming universalism. Faith in Christ is a condition of salvation that one must obey, and it therefore is a work of obedience, John six twenty eight through 29. Now, that's a, that's a good point that he makes here. Uh, that God, if, he, if if obedience to God is not essential for salvation, then all will be saved. Yeah, if it's just if it's just if it's uncon if it's totally unconditional. In other words, if God's grace covers everything and there's no conditions of salvation, then you'd have to believe it, in universalism. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. But he referenced a passage that's very pertinent to this discussion: Hebrews chapter five, verse eight. Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Exactly. It is important that we obey. That's who the people, that is the people that Jesus will save. Paul said in Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, what? 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God has taught us how to live. So, in other words, God didn't just throw out salvation. He provided, through his grace, he provided salvation and a way of life that is best in all regards. It teaches us how we should live. Uh, so, uh, uh, certainly, if the grace of God teaches us, then there'd be an ex- expectation that we do what it teaches us to do. You know, when people like this author make statements like this and try to say that we're just saved by grace and there's no requirement on our part, they don't make sense even in some of the sentences they write here in their article, but they don't make sense in making the scriptures make sense. They pluck this idea out of grace and pervert it and twist it and make it in such a way that the Bible then becomes contradictory. I can't and read almost effectively meaning, meaningless. meaningless. Yeah, I, I can't read the Bible with their definition of grace and make it harmonize. It doesn't harmonize. How do I harmonize if, if he, uh, Hebrews chapter uh, five verses eight and nine that uh, that Kent referenced, where Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, and then believe what He says about grace that it doesn't matter what you do, you don't have to obey. Those those two ideas cannot harmonize. Obviously, his definition of grace is wrong. We have to make the Bible harmonize. And any interpretation that we put on grace or on obedience, those two ideas have to harmonize. And we yeah. think we we do harmonize them with our with our understanding. Yeah, but we are we certainly understand that grace God's grace is completely necessary because we cannot earn our salvation. There's no way that we can work. Earn, merit, salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, Ephesians 3, verses 8, or Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Brad says, if no, I know of no one who teaches that God is ever obligated to do anything, nor do we teach that grace teaches us to strive for obedience, Titus 2. Oh, see, now we do teach that grace uh, teaches us to strive for obedience, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We also teach that God has made promises, and therefore we may there, therefore... Uh, rely on those promises, Romans 4, verse 16. But this fellow's summary, or Hughes' summary, uh, above turns grace into a mathematical equation, and I uh, don't know anyone who genuinely teaches or believes such a thing. Thank you, Brad, for those comments. Exactly right. Mohan says, uh, simply being obedient to God means that we are still unprofitable servants, doing only what is our duty. We don't perfectly keep the law of Christ. Thank you, Mohan, for that. Absolutely. And Dwight uh, skipped over uh, question number 12. Let's go Uh, on. Let's go on. Next paragraph uh, in this doctrinal summary of the Church of Christ, our internet author says, when asked how they know that they are saved, they will probably say something like, I have been obedient or I have been pleasing to God. That's kind of an... Now, again, I don't know anybody who says that. I don't know who this guy talked to. uh, where he would get because he puts that actually in quotation marks and i understand he's not saying that someone directly said that but apparently he talked to someone who left the impression with him that if asked how they know they are saved that we would have responded in that fashion now i think what i would do if someone says how do you know how do you know what god how, how, how do you know your relationship with God? How do you know you're standing with God? I think I would go to First John, First John chapter two, uh, verse three. Hereby we do know that we know Him, 
if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, and in him verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know we that we are in him. First John's talking about having confidence, knowing things. Yeah. And I know that I'm in a right relationship with God, not by some kind of feeling or because I've had faith, because I obey him. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously we're not perfect in regards to keeping the instructions of God. Uh, we we need the forgiveness that God extends through the precious blood of Jesus. But notice what John's saying. If we keep his word, we know that we are in him. No, so here, here here's an example. The word of God says that I should be baptized for the remission of sins. I have not been baptized for the remission of sins. So how would I know that I'm saved? I can say, well, I'm, I think I'm saved because I just think God's a loving God and I'm, I'm a pretty good moral person. I'm just going to trust that. Or would I say, in regards to that specific, I know that I'm right with God because I did what he said. I was baptized for the remission of sins. So that's not, that's not the whole picture, but that's a part of the picture. How would I know? How would I know that I'm saved in regards to the question of baptism? Well, because the New Testament is real clear about baptism, and I've done what it tells me to do about baptism, I really don't have to worry. I don't have to have any self-doubt or concern on the question of baptism. I have been baptized for the remission of sins. Therefore, on that question, I know that I know him. Let's put it the other way. Let's ask this author, well, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that? Well, I've asked Jesus into my heart as my personal Savior. I've said the sinner's prayer. How am I going to know that I'm saved by that? I don't read about that anywhere in the Bible. You see the fallacy of his approach. I want to be able to know that I'm saved, that I'm in a right relationship with God. Well, he's told me what I need to do. And I can, have, I can know that I know him when I keep his commandments. Exactly right. Brad, in the chat room, let's first off, James in Florida. Neither faith nor works can contain any efficacy. The rod of Moses did not part the waters. It served as a petition to God that God would part the waters. Our faith and works are like the rod of Moses. We plead for God's grace based on the way that God has chosen for us to ask for his grace. In the Old Testament, God gave several ways for people to seek his grace. What counted, though, was the fact that it was God's choice. But the brass serpent did not cure the venom. God did. Israel pleaded for grace. I like the way James puts that. Okay. Uh, and then uh, Brad says, well, there is a sense that I have been obedient or pleasing to God to the extent that I have not sinned and have done good. I have done what God has told me to do. If I have sinned and have come to God in repentance, I have still done what God has told me to do. First John one verse nine. Bottom line, I'm saved because Jesus died for me. John three sixteen and 17, first Corinthians 15 verse three. Consequently, I owe him my life and therefore do my very best to live my life the way he directs. Because he has promised to forgive my failings, I can and do trust that he will forgive my failings. Again, John, 1 John 1, verse 9. And, the, and in the end, save me, Matthew 25, verse 31. And following. Thank you, Brad, for that. That's a good, good answer, Brad. And Kent, nothing wrong with referring to the reception of salvation for past sins as resulting from our obedience. One must obey God in order to be saved, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. If one is... Does, if one is not required to obey God in order to be saved, that would mean God would save individuals in rebellion to him. How ridiculous. Now, what about that? What about, could I just say, well, 
I believe in God's grace, and I'm going to. And I'm I am a liar. not going to do that. I am not going to be baptized. Uh, I don't care what you say. The Bible says about that question of baptism. I'm a believer in grace, and I specifically refuse to be baptized. And I expect God to save me anyway. I'm not going to stop my lying. I'm not going to stop my immorality. I'm just hey, that grace is going to cover it. And I, that, you ask me how I'm how I know I'm going to be saved when I continue. In my rebellion, well, because I have faith. Yeah. Doesn't line up with what the Scripture teaches, does it? Mohan says the answer is in Hebrews 5, verse 9. You already referenced that. He is it the did. author yep. of eternal salvation. Mm-hmm. Do all them that obey him. Right. Um, and, and Dwight in Iowa references how Paul felt. Paul's confidence approaching death. Second Timothy 4, verse 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. Paul said it, and it is recorded for us in the scriptures that if we are obedient to the Lord, we will be with him for all eternity. You know, again, the author of this Internet article has has almost cast off on the whole notion of obedience. Yeah. That is somehow we're doing something terrible. You think you have to obey God? You th- you th- Where? Well, that- what turnip truck did you fall off of? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, James says the sinner prayer, the sinner's prayer was prayed for three days by Paul. Afterwards, God sent a man who said to him, what are you waiting for? And Paul, if he believed in the sinner's prayer, would have said, James says, what do you mean? I'm, what, what am I waiting for? I've been praying the sinner's prayer for three days. God commanded him to arise and be baptized, and that was to wash his, away his sins. Yeah. James makes an excellent point there. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's grab our last break. When we come back, we're going to catch maybe one or two more, and then we're going to, we're going to drag this thing out one more week, it looks like. All right. Uh, we're going to get, uh, continue to the top of the hour, finishing up what we can get through this week right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, my name is Mike Johnson. I'm a member here at the College of View Church of Christ. Have you ever heard someone say that the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic? Generally, people say this when we say that we must be careful to follow all the commands that God has given us. When we say, God says we must do this, or God doesn't command us to do that, people respond with, the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic. Well, while it may be impossible to know exactly what people mean when they make this accusation, if they are accusing us of being legalistic because we say that we should follow all the instructions that God has given us, then that accusation is correct. But let me ask you this. Which of the commands that God has given us should we ignore? Can we pick and choose which commands we follow, or must we follow them all? Jesus said we have to follow all the commands of God when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We want to call Jesus our Lord, so we try to follow all the commandments that he has given us. Us. We don't in any way think that following God's commands earns our salvation, but we do think it is necessary to be pleasing to Him. Here at the College of You Church of Christ, we're trying to follow every command that God has given us. If, as a result, some people call us legalistic, then so be it. We think it's what God calls being righteous. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. 60% of Americans say humans have evolved over time, but only about half of that group, 32%, believes that humans and other living things evolved solely due to natural processes. A quarter of U.S. adults, 24%, say that humans and other life evolved, but that this evolution was guided by a supreme being. The same survey found that a third of Americans, 33%, reject evolution entirely, saying humans and other living things have existed in their present form since the beginning of time. 
That information is via Pew Research Center. The Word of God says in Psalm 33, beginning verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. We're back on the program tonight as we go to the top of the hour looking at Bible questions for the Church of Christ, part two. Part three is next week, Lord willing. But um, Doc, get... but before we go to the next point, James in Florida has really been active in the chat room. Yeah, he, makes James, an, he makes another good point. In my view, that for the saving of his household concerning Noah in Hebrews chapter 11, for the remi- and, and, and for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, should be studied together and within their context. Peter tells us the like figure unto where baptism doth also now save us, 1 Peter 3.21. So Peter is connecting our obedience in baptism in that context, 1 Peter 3, to Noah's building of the ark. Peter tells us the like figure unto baptism doth also now save us. Thus, the way that Noah's household was saved and the way that we are saved should be studied together. Noah worked for 120 years, but it, but his salvation was of grace, not of works. He didn't deserve it. Uh, I think uh, Genesis 6, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. A good point. Thank you for that, James. That's a good connection. I like it. Yeah, good. Glad to have James back in the chat room for two weeks in a row here. This is good Good comments. Glad to have Brad in there. Brad and James are sort of carrying all the water in the chat room there. Um, but uh, good, good comments there tonight. All right. All right. So I think we've got time to catch just one more thing here. And, and this, again, is a, is a classic misrepresentation of what we say. And, and I, we really want to stress we're not, a, we're not mad at this guy. We don't object to having our positions questioned or challenged. I would like to be accurately represented. And this guy has done a very bad job of representing what we believe. And I hope that's been clear as we've been sort of commenting uh, about the whole article. He says... I'm looking at paragraph 14. The role of Christ and thus the atonement was merely for the purpose of displaying God's love for man and giving him a law to obey that could bring life. Christ is said to save man by furnishing man an example. He simply showed man how to save himself. Can I just, that may be the worst thing that he said in the whole article so Can far. I just read Brad's response? He said, uh, incredibly, best I can tell, every single point in number 14 has no basis in fact. We just don't teach any of that, so I feel no obligation to, to defend it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just not, that's not true. Uh, we don't, get, get that, he, he showed man how to save himself. I don't know any, I've never known anybody who ever said that. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, I, I consider that to be practically blasphemous. It is. Uh, in First Peter chapter two, First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-four, who Jesus, His own self, bare our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For we were a sheep going astray, but now are returning to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. We're healed by his stripes. We're not, we're not healed by his example. We, we, he didn't just show us how we can save ourselves. He shed his blood to save us. Yeah. We're, we, we're bought with the blood of Jesus. Yeah, crazy, ridiculous. Here's what Kent says. While certainly Christ in the atonement displayed the love of God for humanity and his suffering and death, his atonement is far more than that. 
We do not believe and or teach that the purpose of the suffering and death of Christ was for displaying the love of God for humanity only. We accept the truth of the scriptures that the suffering and death of Christ was also for the purpose of paying our sin debt, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24. It is true that one does play a role in salvation, Acts 2, verse 40. We do not save ourselves by inventing our own conditions, Romans 10, 1 through 3, but rather by demonstrating our faith and obeying the conditions of Christ as set forth in the gospel, Romans 6, 17 and 18. Uh, certainly. Yeah, how can you uh, say, well, you just believe and then you don't obey the conditions set forth? Uh, good observations there by Kent. All right. Uh, now, Kent has provided, he, he, he was very diligent, and as he always is, in providing comments. And he went all the way through there. We've got one, two, three, four, five more paragraphs here that we have uh, not covered. Well, Kent has commented on them. We'll save his comments for next week. Mohan has got one more comment on those things. And so uh, if you want to work ahead, some of you guys who were able to cover some of the first paragraphs but didn't get time to cover the others, if you'd like to work ahead, we'll try to cover beginning with paragraph 15 and on through next week. And I thought also what we might do uh, is if we have time, if you want to look deeper in that very long article, if you want to go to his sort of review of our position on instrumental music, We'll do that if we have time at the end next week. All right. Good discussion. James will wrap us up tonight with another good comment from Florida. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The creator of time does not dwell in time. The price that Jesus paid is the basis for all forgiveness, which God has ever granted. Only God can save. Thank you. Thank you, James, for those comments. All right. Uh, good, Good participation by our listeners. You know, uh, what we had in our listener responses did represent a, a serious investment in time that our listeners took uh, today when you sent out uh, the questions for our consideration and putting those together. And we do appreciate them this week and every week. They do help to make the program better, bringing out lots of different points for us to consider, lots of different verses for us to consider that you and I would not have pre- presented likely. And so we all benefit uh, from the participation of our listeners. So those who commented tonight, Thank you for that. And those who listened, uh, we appreciate you listening. You know, I, just, I, want to sne- I want to give a sneak peek at the next point here. He says uh, the next paragraph we're going to talk about next week, Lord willing, is that their theology may be either semi-Pelagian or full Pelagian. Do you, does anybody know who Pelagius was? I, in the sake of full disclosure, I'll have to admit I had to look that up. Oh. Uh, and we'll talk about that next week. But, you know, our positions are not formulated based upon what someone, some philosopher or theologian has said in centuries past or even modern. You know, there's a lot of very popular theologians in our day. A lot of young people are drawn to people like N.T. Wright and others. We're not formulating our position based upon what those guys say. We're just reading the Bible and trying to understand it, do what it says. And we believe God, in his wisdom, could present us with the word that we could do that. Yeah. That you don't have to have a, fa- a fallible man tell you what he what God yeah. wants you to do. God yeah. tell, told us what we want to do. We just want to read it and study it yeah. and do it. Yeah. Uh, and so we're doing that. Now, there's a high likelihood that someone listening to the program tonight may disagree with some of the conclusions we've drawn. Maybe so. We would encourage you at any time to contact us, questions at collegeu.com. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. We're not here. We're not looking for a fight or an argument. We just want to study the scriptures and come to a common understanding. Kyle, we believe that that we can open the scriptures and come to a common understanding of God's word, and that's what we're trying to do here. Yes. If hopefully by the end of a Bible study, there's an understanding. If there's opinions could change, 
and someone could be changed and saved if they're in error. They can be saved from that error. So it's yeah. yeah it, it and you know it's it's not a matter of winning an argument. You know, uh, our friend Pat in Harvest, Alabama, says you know when you return home from a Bible study, and your wife asks you how did it go, you don't say well I won and he lost. We're all winners if we have Bible, if we go to the Bible, if we search it out, and if we try to understand what it says to do and we do it. We're all winners. There's no losers. All right. Kyle, thanks for helping us get it out tonight on the program. And, Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jake. Thank you for being here. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.